Father, again, it is, it's a wonderful thing to be together and to be able to gather in the name and in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, to gather as your people in true fellowship, even in the, the anticipation of the day when our fellowship with one another will be complete, uh, the day in which there will be no guile, no hypocrisy, no distance, no separation of any kind, but we will be perfectly one with one another as even now in the Messiah, we are perfectly one with you. And so I pray, Father, that we would be completely united in heart and in mind, common purpose, common praise, common devotion, as we gather to celebrate you as sharers in Christ and to recognize that we are bound together by your one spirit. How we ask that you would minister to us, that you would free us from anything that would distract us, anything that would be a preoccupation coming into this time, and that you would mercifully free us up to simply, as it were, sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus and learn of him and grow in him and have hearts filled with gratitude and praise. And so meet us in this time. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, last time we looked at the making of the covenant and in particular the the partitioning between the Decalogue and the ordinances and uh, some general observations about how to think about the law of Moses. And one of the most important things that we've talked about is the fact of recognizing that all covenants are relational contracts. And so the law of Moses, which was the covenant at Sinai, the covenant with Israel, was itself a relational contract. God had identified Israel as his firstborn son, by virtue of their uh, Abrahamic descent. They were the Abrahamic people. And so the covenant at Sinai was the way in which God was formalizing that Abrahamic relationship with a people who, again, had lost track of him. They'd forgotten him in Egypt, and God had to reintroduce himself to them. Even though they had forgotten him, God had not forgotten Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had not forgotten his covenant. He had not forgotten his promises. And he brought them out of Egypt in order to bring them specifically to that holy mountain to formalize that relationship with them. He would be a father to them. They were sons and daughters to him, again, in terms of the Abrahamic definition, so that through that faithful sonship, uh, Israel would end up mediating the knowledge of God to all the families of the earth. Through being faithful as sons, they would fulfill their Abrahamic identity, their Abrahamic calling. And the covenant at Sinai got at that in the sense that it really defined and def- and described and prescribed what it would look like for Israel to fulfill its sonship. So the Sinai covenant in that sense was Torah, the word law, and we've talked about this whole understanding of law and the way in which we need to think about it biblically, uh, but I, I put down this statement from uh, William Dumbrell as, because I think it's very important in a very concise statement of how we should think about this idea of Torah 
in contrast and comparison to how we naturally think about the concept of law. And he says, it is unfortunate that this term, Torah, the most generalized Old Testament concept for the covenant demand, should be translated by this word law. For undoubtedly, such a translation has led to views of the Old Testament dispensation. By that, he means the Old Testament period, the era of Israel's life with God. Uh, It's led to views of that era which do not correspond to the reality of the revelation progressively delivered. What is primarily involved in this Hebrew term, Torah, is direction for life within the framework of the presupposed relationship. The connotation conveyed by the English word law is unfortunate. It's a connotation of regulations imposed by a competent authority to which have been attached the backing of some sanctions or other so that the subject upon whom law is imposed will incur a penalty if the law code concerned is breached. That's the way we naturally think about this idea of law. But in the Old Testament, adherence to law is not so much a matter of fulfilling a legal demand as demonstrating by way of national or personal life that a sphere of divine blessing has been entered. That's a very important statement. If law is Torah, the law of Moses was Torah as the relational covenant that established and prescribed the relationship between God and Israel. And so fulfilling the law was a matter of demonstrating both as the nation of Israel and in the individual Israelites that they were living within the sphere of divine blessing. They were living as sons of the Father. They were living faithfully within that covenant definition. So the law of Moses then instructed Israel in its role as son, servant, disciple, and witness to the nations. And that is the fundamental sense, as we talked about last time, in which Jesus fulfilled the law. In different contexts, in different ways, Jesus made it clear that he had come to fulfill the law. Certainly he he begins what we call the Sermon on the Mount in that way. Do not begin to say to yourselves, that I came to abrogate the law or the prophets. I did not come to abrogate, but to fulfill, to fulfill the law. And based on the way we naturally think about law, we say, okay, what that means is that, to use Dumbrell's vernacular, Jesus kept all the regulations and therefore was not subject to any of the sanctions or punishment. And therefore, because he kept all the regulations, uh, what how that pertains to us is that that, perfect conformity to regulations and statutes gets imputed to us. And in that way, we, um, God deals with our own transgression, our own violation of his standard, of his regulations, of his law. But the way in which Jesus fulfilled the law is that he fulfilled Israel's identity. If the law of Moses by defining and prescribing Israel's sonship as the Abrahamic people, in a very real way, the law was like a picture of who Israel would be if Israel was Israel in truth. And by being in himself the true Israelite, embodying Israel in himself, Jesus embodied the truth of what the law was all about. He embodied in himself what it meant to be son, servant, witness, and disciple to the nations uh, as the Abrahamic seed. He is the one in whom Israel's own existence reached its climax and its ultimate fulfillment.
So he fulfilled Israel's identity, even bearing in himself Israel's just condemnation that had brought about Israel's exile, its, um, its judgment under God, the desolation of the covenant kingdom. He bore that condemnation in himself so that in him Israel was liberated and restored to fulfill its own vocation on behalf of the world. Through his triumph as Israel, now Israel could begin to fulfill its mandate to mediate the blessing of God to the families of the earth. And that's really what the Great Commission was about. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus was charging his disciples with carrying out that Abrahamic mandate that was bound up in him, and they would do so by sharing in him in a very real way. And we've talked about this in other contexts. Um, Paul says that the church is the fullness of the Messiah who fills all in all. And so how does Jesus carry out the Abrahamic mandate as the seed of Abraham? He does it through those who share in his life and likeness by his spirit. He has his fullness in the body that shares in him. And so he accomplishes that Abrahamic mandate uh, through this thing that's called the church. And that's why very early on, as you see in the book of Acts, as soon as you have... um, the outpouring of the Spirit and the beginning of this new community that are defined by the Messiah himself, most of whom are Jewish, very early they recognize if this is the renewal of Israel, if this is the end of exile, if this is the restoration of the covenant relationship, the renewing of the Abrahamic people and the Abrahamic relationship centered in the Messiah himself, then it's time for this Gentile mission to begin. It's time for this mission to the nations to begin. And so you see uh, the primarily Jewish church uh, beginning to go out to the nations with this message uh, of renewal and new life in the Messiah. So all Jew and Gentile alike who share in the Messiah share in his faithful sonship. And so in that way are true sons of Abraham, persons in whom the righteousness of the law is fulfilled. That's what we have to think of when Jesus spoke about fulfilling the law and the implications of his fulfilling the law for us. We are incorporated in that own fulfillment, in his own fulfillment by sharing in him. And his fulfillment was a matter of embodying in himself truly, faithfully, comprehensively what it is to be son of God, seed of Abraham. So the question then of the continuing relevance of the law of Moses, and this is very much an issue in Christian circles of all types, whether dispensational, reformed, whatever it happens to be, the question of the continuing relevance of the law of Moses isn't a matter of law versus grace. It's not a matter of law versus gospel. It's not a matter of God's unchanging moral nature. It's really a matter of promise and fulfillment. Nothing is abrogated, everything is fulfilled. And so the law of Moses, as all of God's revelation, applies to those in Christ as it has moved through and been transformed and become yes and amen in the Messiah. And we'll talk more about that, but that that was just kind of a, a summary statement there. However we think about this relevance of the law to us, it has to be seen in and through Uh, the fulfillment that has come in Jesus himself. 
So returning then back to, to Exodus, that's kind of a summary of where we've gotten to this point. And after Moses receives the ten, the ten words, the Decalogue, then there's, there's from 21 to 23 in Exodus, uh, the giving of the ordinances, the Mishpatim we talked about last time, which is the instruction of God in uh, wise jurisprudence or wise life, what the life of Israel will look like according to wisdom and justice, the ordinances. And then uh, in 24, the Lord says, I'll, I'll read this, Yahweh said to Moses, come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Nadab and Abihu were two of Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to Yahweh, but they, these others, shall not come near, nor shall the people, the rest of the people, come up with him. Then Moses came. Now, this is what God said to Moses while he was on the mountain. Now, Moses comes down the mountain, and he recounts to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. God had given this instruction to Moses. He brings it to the people. He speaks it to them, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which Yahweh has spoken we will do. And then Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh and arose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant the words that he had written, and he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient to the covenant. We will keep covenant with the Lord. So Moses then took the blood, and he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, the ratifying blood, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. It's kind of an echo of what you'll see in Ezekiel later, right, when Ezekiel has his vision. Yet Yahweh, he, did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, the elders, and they beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. So, in terms of the progress of this making of the covenant, after God has given the instruction to Moses, he comes down and he conveys it to the people. He speaks it to them. Remember, they had said, we can't bear to hear the Lord. You go up, you listen to him, then you come and you bring the words to us. Moses is the mediator between God and the people. And the Lord would say, the people have spoken well, right? You will be the mediator between me and them. So Moses speaks these words to the people and they say, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. All that he has set forth, we will do. So father and son had both expressed their commitment to the covenant. And now it was to be formally ratified by covenant ritual, just as God had done with Abraham. 
God gave the kernel of his covenant intention to Abraham, but it was in chapter 15 of Genesis that there was the formalizing of the covenant involving the ritual of the severing of the animals, remember, and the the smoking pot passing between. And so you have an actual physical ritual that ratifies the covenant, and so it is here. So Moses recorded all the words of the covenant in a book in the sight of the people and then erected an altar upon 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes and then directed that burnt offerings and peace offerings be sacrificed to Yahweh. There was no Aaronic priesthood at this time. Moses is functioning as a priest and he was a Levite, but God had not yet formally established the Levitical priesthood. That's going to come next when Moses goes back up the mountain. 25 through 31 in Exodus, God will give the prescription for the priesthood grounded in Aaron and his sons. But that hasn't happened yet. But these two forms of offering, burnt offering and peace offerings, attested the fact that Israel, which is now the newly confirmed covenant son, and itself has affirmed its own ownership of the covenant, At that time, Israel, the son, is blameless under the covenant and the relationship it established and entailed. A peace offering was offered where there was nothing standing between God and the worshiper. So often the peace offering would follow the sin offering in the administration of the offerings in the Levitical structure that God will put in place. So the point is covenant father and son are at this point fully at peace with one another. And as part of the ratifying ritual, then Moses sprinkles blood from the sacrifices on the altar, which is in a sense sprinkling God, you know, sprinkling uh, uh, God's own ownership of the solemnity of this, and also sprinkling the people themselves, which underscores both the solemnity and the severity of the covenant relationship. In the ancient world, the sacrificing of the animal and and the splitting of the animal and the passing of the covenant parties between the body parts signified the fact that they were owning the covenant at the peril of their own death were they to break it. The sacrificed animal spoke of, again, the severity of this obligation, passing between the the severed, you know, the halves of the carcasses reminded the covenant makers that they were bound to this. And there was a severity should they break it. So Israel now had twice heard the words of the covenant, once from Moses' mouth as Yahweh's mediator, and then from the book where Moses had inscribed those words. And both times they had expressed their commitment to be faithful to the covenant. So they were clear in their obligation and the gravity of that obligation, and they openly affirmed their commitment. And then we see this somewhat strange event in these last few verses, verses 9 through 11, that we we just read. The covenant now has been ratified. It's, It's officially instituted. It's been inaugurated. And what that means is that Israel, as the firstborn son, as the Abrahamic son, that intimacy of the covenant nation with the father is formally established. And so then Yahweh directs Moses, Aaron, his sons, and 70 elders who represent the nation. 70 is a number, seven, or 70 is a multiple of seven, represents completion. And these elders represent the whole nation. So Moses and these individuals who are going to be the foundation of the priesthood 
and then the people themselves represented in the elders, God calls them all up to the mountain. And they are called to the mountain to have a celebratory meal, a fellowship meal with Yahweh. And as I mentioned here, the covenantal context for that is crucial to understanding its meaning. Because if we've been following the story, we should say, wait a minute. God had said, keep the people back from the mountain. Don't let them come near the mountain. Nobody, Moses, you can come up, but nobody, right? And even warns them a second time, warn the people, if someone breaks through to come up and to gaze at me, he's going to die. Hold the people, make sure the people know to stay back, because if they break through to come up the mountain to gaze at me, they're going to perish. And now you have 70 four men, right? The 70 and Moses and Aaron and two of his sons going up the mountain. And the text says they saw the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel and yet he did not stretch out his hand against them. They beheld God. The first one is they saw with their eyes this and now beholding there's a kind of scrutiny or examination of him, seeing him more intimately beholding him, and they ate and they drank in his presence, and he didn't strike them down. Well, why not? And that's why I say the covenantal context is the key. The covenantal context is the issue. They had gone up there at God's directive, um, but the reason that now he is not um, coming against them or breaking out against them is because Israel, the nation, is blameless before him at that point. Previously, the covenant relationship was not in place. In a very real way, Israel, the people, was still estranged from God. Now they are in formal covenant relation as father and son. And the issue isn't the personal sinlessness of these individuals or, you know, how could they do it? Were they not sinners? How, why not the other people? The point that the text wants you to see is that covenantally, Israel, the national corporate son, stands in a perfect relationship of covenantal blamelessness with God. This is the climax of Israel's history, and it comes at the very, uh, the climax of its history in terms of its relationship with God being intact. And no sooner will these men go down the mountain, God says, Moses, you come up and, and stay, and then Moses will be there for 40 days, right? And what happens while Moses is on the mountain? They're making the golden calf. So this state of blamelessness covenantally is not going to last very long and it will never again be recovered. And even the priesthood itself, God is giving this priestly mediatorial structure with a tabernacle and layers and a holy of holies. And he's setting up this, this way to manage the distance between him and Israel, even while they're down there breaking the covenant and, and reestablishing what is their actual alienation from him. So in the moment that the covenant is ratified and they say all that the Lord has, has called us to do, we will do, they are blameless in that way, but it's not going to last. So the communion between Yahweh and Israel that's recounted in these verses spotlights what the covenant had made Israel to be, son of God communing in intimacy with the Father, and it epitomized what was required of them going forward. What was required of them was not rule-keeping, but faithful intimacy. 
in a very real way, living in a, in a state of covenant communion, fellowship with God, if you will, eating and drinking at table with Yahweh as his faithful son. So again, the meal brought the covenant-making process to its climax, but it also stood as the high point of Israel's life with God in that never again would the son enjoy that sort of immediacy and intimacy with the father. Already the covenant would be broken in a matter of days. And then from that point forward, Israel throughout its history would prove to be an incorrigibly unfaithful son, unable to fulfill its calling. And I know I say this a lot, but it's very important in, in the understanding of the significance of, of the coming of the Messiah and, and how we're to understand that, that God had bound up the whole future of his creation in Abraham. He had in a very real way bound himself and his own purposes to a man who would be faithful And that man corporatized in the people of Israel, now God's purposes depend on human faithfulness. God's design for his creation depends on human faithfulness. And it cannot come to pass, right? This is what Isaiah keeps harping on. Is is the ear of the Lord too deaf to hear or his hand too short to save? No, but your iniquities made a separation between you and God. What is the hope? What is the confidence? There is none. There, there's, God looks and there's nobody and he says, I'll arise and I'll put on the helmet of salvation. I'll put on the breastplate of righteousness. I will come. A redeemer will come to Zion, right? And, and so God will put all things right. But yet he bound this up in Abraham. So somehow God's coming has to be causing the seed of Abraham, the human person or people in whom he bound up this purpose for the world. He, that human individual or entity has to fulfill his own Abrahamic mission. But God would somehow arise and cause that to be the case. So Israel's failure sets up this tension of, is all hope lost? How can the creation look with longing and hope and anticipation that Yahweh's going to arise and come and judge and put all things right if it's bound up in Abraham and Abraham's offspring and they cannot be faithful to the covenant? There's the tension. There's the tension. But through all of this is the righteousness of God. He will prove faithful. He will prove faithful. He will somehow cause his covenant to stand, which means he will cause Israel to be Israel somehow in truth. So the communion on Sinai, which spoke of this relationship between God and the Abrahamic people, was both prophetic and promissory. One day, Abraham's true sons would enjoy such communion in full, taken up in God's own life in union with the true son. And we see this even in the way that Jesus explained the meaning of his cross to his disciples. How did he do it in the upper room with a meal? He didn't give them a theory of the atonement or a theology of, uh, you know, expiation or whatever it happens to be, propitiation. What did he do? He explained the meaning of his cross through a meal. And he told them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
not when they die and go off to heaven, but the meaning of his death when they're going to despair and, and see the death of this one they thought was the Messiah and see him taken down and put in the, the grave. And they're going to despair. And he says, you need to understand that this horrible event that's coming, what seems to be the end, is actually the way in which I am preparing a place for you in the Father's house. And know that I'm going to return to you. I'm going to return to you in my spirit. And when I return to you in that way, then my father, if you love me, if you love my father, then we will come and we will make our place with you. We will, I will take you to myself. And in that day, then you will know that I am in the father, the father's in me, and you are in me, and you are in us. There's the place that I'm preparing for you. So whatever intimacy, whatever fellowship we have, even around this table as we're celebrating the Passover, the immediacy and intimacy that you know now is nothing compared with what's coming. It's good that I go away. If I don't go away, the Spirit will not come. But when he comes, I'll be bound with you in an everlasting fellowship meal of intimacy and, and uh, you know, communion that will endure forever. And that transcends anything that you can know because in that day, I'll be in you and you'll be in me. And so this, what you see portrayed with Israel is itself a very powerful messianic, prophetic, promissory um, event. And you see Jesus speaking in that way. Remember on the road where the Israelite asked him, Lord, are only a few being saved? He's asking him as an Israelite, if you're the Messiah, if you're inaugurating the kingdom, how many of the sons of Israel are going to enter this kingdom? Who are the righteous ones within your covenant household? And he says, be very careful. Enter by the narrow way. And what he means is this way into the kingdom is in me. I tell you, there's going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets gathered together at table in the kingdom of God and you yourselves cast out and men will come from north and south and east and west and take their place at the table in the kingdom of God. So the last will be first and the first will be last. The kingdom will be taken from the sons of the kingdom, the Israelite people, and given to those who will bear the fruit of it. So that's how Jesus even dealt with this thing, is that this is to result in a fellowship meal, but one in which you yourselves will be left out. And Jesus, even in exhorting the, the, the church at Laodicea in Revelation, said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears and opens to me, I will come into him and I will sup with him, right? I will dine with him. So this principle of fellowship centered in a meal together was very much a part of Israel's life. And this is why they did not even want to sit at table with Gentiles because they were outside of the covenant. This is an intimacy that belongs within the covenant household and ultimately with God himself. And the peace offering, the peace meal in the peace offering, they would eat of that offering in the presence of Yahweh to commemorate that sort of intimacy. But this was the high point of that for Israel. But it was the promise of a day coming when the whole creation would, as it were, dine together with Yahweh at his table. Right? And Jesus said, even in that day, I will rise and I will gird myself and I will serve you. The Lord will serve the household sitting at the table. 
So Jesus explained his own death and, and what would come from it, what God was doing with a fellowship meal. What had been expressed with the sons of Israel would be recovered in truth and in full and everlastingly. And even now we sit at table with our God, right? We are one spirit with him and one spirit with one another. This is how we should think of fellowship, even with one another. It's whether we're eating or whatever we're doing, this is what fellowship is all about. So that's that strange event of them going up on the mountain and seeing God and why they're not destroyed, because at that moment, all is well, all is right. And we have that privilege, right, in, in Christ. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ, being transformed into that same image from glory to glory by the Lord who is the Spirit. Well, let me close us in prayer then. Father, these are profound things and they are themes and symbols and concepts that you have marvelously and graciously woven into the fabric of the story that reaches its climax in Jesus our Lord. And when we see these things and we understand them and we piece them together in a proper way, what a glorious portrait they paint. They truly do enable us to understand you and the truth of who you are and what it is that you've accomplished in Jesus our Lord in a fresh and a powerful way. And I pray that these things would grow ever more strongly and and. Um, in a transformative way upon our hearts and minds. May we be changed by them, not simply acknowledge them in some sort of uh, academic way. But Father, may they bear fruit. May they take root and bear fruit in our hearts and our minds and help us to grow in our understanding of this one that we call the Messiah, the one who is Lord the one who is our brother, the one whose kingship and priesthood and rule over all things we are ordained to share in. To the one who overcomes, I will give to sit on my throne as I have overcome and sit on the throne of my father. That's our glorious hope. That's the promise held out to us. And Father, we do desire in all things to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus our Lord. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. That's what it means to be faithful with the Spirit's work and leading in our lives. For His work as the agent of recreation is to perfect that new creational life and likeness of Jesus in us. That we would be His ambassadors. We would be the Abrahamic people in the world bringing the blessing of the God of Israel to all the families of the earth. Help us to be good stewards of this charge and Father, to find great delight in it, to not see it as a cumbersome duty that is bound upon us by a demanding God, but to see it as the privilege of the children of God, those who are called by your name. So bless us in these things. Give us grace and mercy to meditate on them, to contemplate them, to labor, to grow in them. Even as the psalmist said, the blessed man is the one who meditates on Torah day and night. And he will be like a tree planted by the streams of water 
that bears its fruit in season and its leaves never wither. In all he does, he prospers. May we be such people. Help us to be ministers of that goal, that aspiration, that labor with one another. And all of this, Father, we ask in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.